Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 33, Strength and Honorius. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are learning about the Druids. And here's a sample. Take Ogham, for example. Ogham is the native written language of Celtic Ireland. Ogham, or Tree Ogham as some call it, took its name from the god Ogmios and was carved into the trunk and branches of trees, following the natural path of the branches. So instead of being read left to right on a flat geometric slab or page, it would follow the flow of the tree. And frankly, I think that's incredible. But what makes Ogham important for this story is how it was taught. When you learned English, you probably went through the same steps that I did. A is for apple, B is for bear, C is for cat, and so on and so forth. Well, if you were learning Ogham, you'd do something very similar, but it wouldn't use apples, bears, and cats. You'd use trees. Ogham has 18 letters, and each corresponds to a tree. A is for elm or elm. B is for beth or birch. C is for coal, hazel. D is for Darach, Oak. So even in matters of linguistic education, even long after Druidism was outlawed, trees were central to Celtic life. If you'd like to hear more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. It's about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Douglas, Stephen, and Kurt for signing up already. Now before we get going, I'd like to tell you something interesting that I only just learned. So Megan, our paleoanthropologist listener, was chatting with me the other day about Cheddar Man. Do you remember Cheddar Man? He was the prehistoric fellow who died and had his bones scraped clean of flesh. Well, Megan had some interesting perspectives on Cheddar Man and actually on cannibalism. Well, maybe not that perspective. So Megan pointed out that secondary burial practices were actually quite common amongst early humans. Secondary burial practices may seem strange to us because we generally don't do them anymore, but here's the basic rundown of how it would play out. What would happen is you bury a person, preferably after they died, preemptive burying is rather rude, then you let them mostly rot out, then you dig them up, clean the bones, and then bury them somewhere else. Anyway, so Cheddar Man had marks on his bones that indicate that they were scraped clean of flesh. But Megan points out that unless there's a cultural history with cannibalism, it's generally assumed that secondary burial practices are responsible for the bones being scraped clean, rather than just jumping right to cannibalism. Now, the condition of the bones and the general find has led some scholars to argue that our prehistoric friend might have been eaten. But as with most things from this period, we can't be 100% certain of anything. So Cheddar Man might have been eaten. But on the other hand, he might have just been reburied at another point. We'll never know. All right, so on with the regular podcast. So where were we? It's 395, and Theodosius I has unified the Roman Empire. And then he died. And actually, that was the last time the empire would be unified. Under Theodosius's rule, Rome was still winning substantial victories on the continent, primarily actually along the frontiers. Although the situation was beginning to look quite dire towards the end of his life, and now Theodosius is dead. 
And to make matters worse, the Roman forces that were fighting against the barbarian pressure on the frontiers were highly reliant on, you guessed it, large barbarian forces that were allied to Rome. So we have barbarians fighting against barbarians. And these barbarians were allied, for now at least. So let's talk a little bit about these guys. To say that these forces were under Roman control would be to tell a lie. Think of these armies as if they were stereotypical cats. And fair warning here, I'm a dog person. So barbarian armies, how are they like cats? Well, you can sometimes get a cat to do what you want, usually through bribing it, or depending on what kind of person you are, uh, using a squirt gun. But generally, the cat is going to do what it wants to do, and it really could care less what you want it to do or what you think of it. Hell, it probably doesn't even care whether you live or die, provided that it still gets fed. Well, that's sort of the same control that Rome had over these barbarian forces. So that's, you know, less than ideal. But this is no longer Theodosius' problem. You know, because he's dead. But it's still Rome's. And Theodosius has left the Eastern Empire to his eldest son, Arcadius, and the Western Empire to his other son, Honorius, both of whom actually were already Augusti. And an interesting note here is that this is the point where a lot of historians say that the divide between East and West became final. And actually, for all intents and purposes, it really is. I mean, both empires still paid lip service to the fact they were part of the same empire, but really, they weren't. So with that in mind, the East isn't that important for us. So we're just going to mainly talk about Honorius and the Western Empire. And actually, we're rather fortunate to be talking about British history here, especially at this point, because while there's going to be major changes in the West under Honorius, what goes on in Britannia is sort of a microcosm of the problems of the Western Empire, and at a couple points, it's actually going to be at center stage to several serious issues. So for us, over 1,600 years later, it's quite lucky. But for the Britons, well, I doubt they felt very lucky. Let's talk about what was going on in Britannia in 395. Well, it was finally part of the Roman Empire again, and the barbarians had been pushed out by the Roman army. So all in all, it was looking good. In fact, despite its recent rebellion, Britannia was actually a pretty stable and prosperous part of the Gallic prefecture. To us, far in the future, with the benefit of hindsight, this looks like the calm before the storm. But to your average Briton, things were probably pretty normal. Sure, Gaul had trouble with barbarians, and on occasion Britannia would be raided by the Picts or the Scots or the Irish or the Saxons. But by and large, things were pretty stable, and the Britons anticipated that Rome would always be there and that Britannia would always be part of the empire. After all, there have been failed usurpations in the past, and regardless of all that, Britannia was still retained by Rome, and Rome still stood. I doubt that anyone would guess that in barely 15 years, Britannia would be permanently severed from the empire, and then the shit would really hit the fan. Okay, so Britannia was under the control of Honorius. Well, it sort of was under the control of Honorius. Remember last week when I was talking about the shift of power from the imperial house to the military? For example, Arbogast and his usurper? Well, we're going to see that again. Emperor Honorius was still the head of state, but he wasn't truly in charge. 
Instead, the matters of ruling passed to chief ministers. And actually, as a brief aside, this was also happening in the East, but it wasn't happening as efficiently because the ministers were generally civil servants. But here in the West, the ministers were generally military men, and they had their own armies. So it was kind of difficult to just say, nope, I don't like that idea, when you're facing off with a general who's got his own army, and what do you have? Maybe a Praetorian prefect and a few house guards? So in the West, power was steadily moving towards generals, and specifically, the generals who had the most troops. Alright, so remember what happened with Theodosius just before he died? He went and put together a huge army, defeated the rebels, and unified the empire, right? So what was going on with that great army in the West? I mean, they'd only just recently defeated Arbogast and Eugenius, so they were still united in one massive force. So what were they up to? Well, at the time of Theodosius' death, the army was still in the field, and actually it was in the continent, and it was under the command of a man named Flavius Stilicho. And actually, Stilicho wasn't even a Roman. He was a vandal. Not that sort of vandal, though, despite how great that would be. No, the sort of vandal that burned down cities and, you know, caused mass havoc. And Stilicho had risen from being just a general to being Theodosius's chief lieutenant, you know, back when Theodosius was still alive. And he was so favored, in fact, that he was married to Theodosius's niece, Serena. And actually, Serena was later adopted by Theodosius as a daughter. So he was basically the son-in-law of the former emperor. And he also claimed that the late emperor asked him to watch over his sons, Arcadius and Honorius. Of course, that request wasn't done publicly, so I'll let you decide whether or not Stilicho was telling the truth there, or, or whether he was just trying to bolster his own claims. But the fact remained that Stilicho had most of the military power in the West in his hands, and he had a strong dynastic claim to power, and also he had a decent narrative to support his heavy-handed command of the Western Empire, as well as his attempts to control the Eastern Empire. I mean, he was just trying to do what the emperor wanted him to do. And on top of all that, he also had the support of the church. Bishop Ambrose of Milan, do you remember him? He was the heavy hitter from the last few episodes. Well, he came out in favor of Stilicho as well. So the end result here is that Honorius had actually very little power, and the real ruler of the West at this time was Stilicho. But Stilicho, at least according to him, was also supposed to watch over the Eastern Empire. And that empire was under Arcadius' dominion, not his. And here's where we begin to run into the problem where the attention of the Western government was completely distracted by its desire to control the Eastern Empire. And I think this was beyond simple greed or a desire to follow the alleged wishes of Theodosius. When you look at the Western Empire... Stilicho really needed control of the Eastern Empire because a good amount of the recruits, military supplies, and cash flow were all located there. I won't get too deep into all of this because this podcast is supposed to be about British history and not Roman history, but there are some things that need to be mentioned. For example, into this mess is thrown Alaric and the Visigoths. The Goths were important to both empires because there was an ever-increasing use of independent barbarian troops for their conflicts, due to the fact that the Roman nobility was resistant to any efforts to raise recruits within their own properties, and even resistant to provide money in many cases. 
And while the conflict between East and West did not directly cause the trouble with Alaric and the Visigoths that we're going to end up talking about later, it certainly presented an open flank for him to exploit, since the two empires were taking turns trying to exploit the military power that the Goths provided. Now before we go any further, I'm going to fess up here and tell you that I'm cutting out a ton of Roman history. I know it might seem like I'm covering a lot, but I'm really not. The story of what is going on in Rome is going to start becoming incredibly complex and chaotic. And much of it only really has a tertiary effect on what's going on in Britannia. What the Romano-Britons really care about is what's happening at home and what sort of support the central government can provide. So by and large, I'm going to focus on what's happening with the central government as it pertains to what's happening or will happen in Britannia. I'll try and include as much of what is happening in Britannia as I can, but as you're probably used to by now, sometimes information is limited, and what we know most about is occurring on the continent. Okay, so with that in mind, let's fast forward to 396. The poet Claudian wrote briefly of some sort of trouble with the Picts, Scots, Irish, and Saxons. And apparently it was so bad that later a punitive campaign was ordered by Stilicho. Unfortunately, a few lines of a poem doesn't really give us a clear picture of what might have happened, or indeed whether anything happened at all. But apparently, by 398, the forces of Rome were able to gain control of the channel and defeat the Saxons and the Scots, though it isn't clear what was going on with the Picts, or whether they were defeated, and if so, whether it was on land or sea. That being said, this might be the second Pictish war that Gildas would later mention. It certainly fits in well with the reference that the Romano-Britons were begging for help, quote, against expectation, end quote. Getting help certainly would have been a bit of a long shot in this period, thanks to a central government that was presumably distracted with dynastic intrigue and continental barbarian issues. So it sort of fits. Anyway, we don't really know much about it. For example, was Stilicho part of this campaign? We're not sure. He certainly wasn't there in 396, because we know he was still on the continent gathering troops. And then he was consumed with dealing with the threat of Alaric and his Gothic army. And after that, Stilicho abruptly halted his pursuit of Alaric, and that was probably so he could deal with troubles in Africa the following year. Oh, and by the way, Ambrose died right about now, which must have been a serious headache for Stilicho, since Ambrose was one of his most powerful supporters. All in all, the late 390s were a busy time for Stilicho, not to, mention, not to mention that he had to deal with arranging the marriage of his daughter to Honorius. It was just a big mess. So anyway, if Stilicho was in Britannia, if he managed to find the time, it probably wouldn't have been until pretty much the end of what might have been the Second Pictish War. He was just too busy on the continent to be present at any other time. But Claudian does seem to indicate that Stilicho was there at least for the naval portion, but we can't be sure if this was accurate or whether it was merely a poetic flourish. And we can't even be sure if peace was truly secured in 399. Now, if he did march there, he definitely didn't bring enough men with him to leave some troops behind. And this means that Britannia was still under garrisoned, and even the victorious general would have been little help to the island in the long term. And here's the worst part. The status quo, the one where Britannia was really undermanned, well, even that was difficult for the empire to maintain. And that's evidenced by the fact that Gildas mentioned that troops were withdrawn from Britannia at the end of the Second Pictish War. Which, again, this might have been. 
Now, why would he have done this? Well, we know that Alaric and his army were now formally part of the Eastern Army, and Stilicho certainly recognized what a threat Alaric was, especially in light of the constant struggle for dominance between East and West. So perhaps he looted Britannia of defenders because he was gathering as many troops as possible in preparation for a potential war. So with that in mind, it's starting to seem possible that this was the second Pictish War that Gildas was speaking of, and that Stilicho did end up showing up at some point and then taking large numbers of British troops with him when he left. And actually, there are later records that indicate that there were British troops all over the empire at around this time, though honestly they could have been transferred at an earlier period. Records are kind of sketchy from this point in history. Anyway, it's a possibility. And if it did happen like that, Gildas mentions that before they left, the troops helped teach the Britons how to construct walls, watchtowers, and they even provided instructions on how to build weapons. I think they were all too aware of the nightmare they were plunging the civilians into, but felt they had no other choice. Okay, and one last nerdy bit of evidence of a large-scale withdrawal is found in coinage. Yes, coinage. Hey, come on, I warned you that it would be nerdy. So I've mentioned that coins were becoming scarcer in Britannia. Well, now they were almost completely dried up. This is important to us because coins being issued were generally indicative of payments being made to troops at this point in our history. We didn't have a mint in Britannia anymore. So coins were typically shipped in in bulk to pay troops. But suddenly we've got this dry spell in coinage. That could indicate that there just weren't enough Roman troops in Britannia to allow for coin hordes and whatnot. Or it could indicate that the army was mostly consisting of barbarians who were paid in land and other tangibles rather than coins. Or it could indicate that the government in the West was pretty close to broke. Or maybe instability on the continent made transportation of the coins difficult. It's hard to say. But the lack of coins is a possible support for the point of view that Stilicho stripped the island of its defenders. Wow, that was a lot of minutiae and not a lot of clear answers. So here's my official review. Something might have happened in 398. That something might have involved the Picts. And that something might have been the second Pictish War mentioned by Gildas. Stilicho might have been there. He might have been victorious. And he might have taken men with him, but also might have provided some amount of improved defenses, or at least instructions on how to improve your defenses. But regardless of what might have happened, Britannia was still at least under-garrisoned, if not left almost entirely defenseless. The island was in serious trouble, but we can't say for certain the extent of that trouble. Aren't you glad that I just included this in the episode? We don't know anything. Well, anyway, it at least gives us a taste of what the Romano-British were dealing with and the level of discontent they might have felt. Okay, so moving forward to 401... We've got more barbarian troubles on the continent. A bunch of barbarian tribes were legging it from the Huns and headed west into Roman lands, so Stilicho went to turn them back. And he was successful. But the problem was that he left his flank wide open for Alaric and his Gothic army. So in 401, Alaric marched into Italy unchallenged and had a field day. And what of Stilicho? Well, despite that he did a good job of turning the barbarian horde, he and his army were still trapped on the wrong side of the Alps, and therefore they couldn't do anything to stop Alaric until the spring came. 
So around this period, we see even more troops being withdrawn from Britannia. This time, it was probably from Carnarvon. In response, there was probably a reorganization of the island, and a small field army was developed at around this point, under the command of Acomus Britanniarum, the Count of Britannia. This was probably in line with Stilicho's general view of how the military in the region should be organized. We can assume that because he was already trying to divert Western municipal funds towards defensive measures. There's a good chance that he wanted pretending to have a field army and then town defenses rather than extensive frontier forts. Quite possibly because it would allow him to remove some of the soldiers from their stations on the island and allow him to further prosecute his war with the east. But anyway, the point is that Stilicho badly needed men, so chances are that the island was pretty largely looted of what soldiers remained, as well as any potential recruits, leaving only a skeleton crew. In fact, it seems that even the Atticotti were called up during this period. Do you remember the Atticotti? They were the Irish barbarians who were also suspected cannibals. These guys were never mentioned in a positive light, and for obvious reasons. But it shows how bad his position was. I mean, he wanted the help of, you know, the Irish. Anyway, so March 402 rolled around, and Stilicho charged into Italy with a much larger army than the one he left with. Alaric suffered significant losses in the battle against Stilicho, and even saw a number of defections to Rome, and he was forced to retreat from Italy. And all of Britain was elated, because that meant that Britain could get their troops back, and things could go back to normal, right? Right? Well, it didn't seem to be going that way. After all, the Eastern threat, not to mention the Gothic threat, weren't completely eliminated. I mean, I said that Alaric was forced to retreat. I didn't say it was killed. So Stilicho might have had reason to hold on to the troops he called up from Britannia, and we don't have any records saying that their troops were returned. And as an interesting side note, following Alaric's defeat... Emperor Honorius decided to move the imperial court to Ravenna, which was even farther from Britannia. The reason for this was defensive, but there were significant political issues with this change, specifically because now Trier and Milan were no longer as important as they once were, and the power of the Western Empire had shifted east. This was undoubtedly making the Brits pretty restless. Anyway, back to our looted troops who probably didn't return to Britannia. Well, frankly, on retrospect, we can't be too hard on Stilicho for that decision. I mean, it turns out that he really did need those troops. That's because before long, 100,000 Goths were once again marching into Italy and pillaging the Roman towns they came across. And actually, it took the better part of a year for the Romans to deal with this new menace. But in 405, Italy wasn't the only part of the Western Empire that was having trouble with barbarians. At around this same time, Neil of Nine Hostages, the High King of Ireland, started raiding the southern coast of Britannia. The mood in Britannia must have been downright mutinous, and it's doubtful they had any sympathy for the Italians and their Gothic troubles. They had plenty of problems right there at home. Now it seems to me that Neil was probably all too aware of the situation Rome was in on the continent, and actually, most of the other barbarian tribes were probably also aware of the same weaknesses. And as a result, the barbarians were getting confident again. After all, what strength Britannia had left was now on the continent, and unless the rules regarding weapons were relaxed, 
the island was largely defenseless. So that wasn't good news for the Romano-Britons. Not at all. So Britannia was taking a beating. And maybe Stilicho wanted to aid Britannia. We can't know for certain, though the record seems to indicate that he preferred to fight against rival Romans or barbarians under the control of rival Romans rather than just regular barbarians. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he wanted to help. Well, any desire to come to Britannia's aid following the defeat of the Goths was soon put to rest. That's because on the last day of 406, a massive horde of Suebi, Alans, and Vandals crossed the Rhine and defeated the Frankish forces that were stationed there. Right around this same time, Marcus, a soldier in Britannia, was proclaimed emperor. Are you as surprised as I am that it took them that long to proclaim an emperor? Well, anyway, they did it, and they picked Marcus. And consequently, it's kind of a tough time to be Stilicho. So why would the British soldiers try to rebel and establish a new emperor? You know, beyond the usual reason, that they were in Britannia, and that's what you do when you're a soldier in Britannia. Well, the soldiers actually had a legitimate beef with the central government. First of all, they lacked men sufficient to carry out their duties, since their numbers were repeatedly reduced due to continental fights. Not to mention that their duties had grown more burdensome over time, rather than less. For example, the whole problem with Neil of the Nine Hostages. Furthermore, why would the local garrison of Britannia care about the defense of Rome? Their military strength was being sacrificed for a city they had no real ties to. I suspect that for many of the soldiers, their loyalty lay with the locals where they were stationed, given that they'd been there for so long. So they probably just wanted to protect their garrison and their charges. Who cares about the emperor? Besides, he was just a name on a coin. And finally, and most selfishly, a successful rebellion could lead to opportunities for quick advancement. Very quick advancement. So personal greed might have also played a role here. So Marcus was elevated. And actually, Stilicho appears to have thrown his hands up with regard to Britannia because he detached the British diocese from the Western imperial government. Which I suppose is okay. You know, we had our own emperor anyway. However, Stilicho was basically just saying, you can't quit Britannia, I'm firing you. Which is the first lesson in Petulant Management 101. Anyway, so Britannia was off on her own. But as I mentioned earlier, Gaul was invaded by a horde of Alans, Sueves, and Vandals in 406. And actually, it was pretty quickly lost, and the horde was now moving towards Boulogne. According to Zosimus, the general viewpoint was that if Gaul was lost, that Britannia would be next. We don't know much about Emperor Marcus, nor do we know how he felt about the issues in Gaul. Maybe he wanted to cross over, or maybe he wanted to stay put and defend Britannia. But whatever he wanted to do, apparently the army was displeased with this choice, because he was assassinated shortly thereafter. This is familiar, isn't it? So now we have another emperor, Gratian. Gratian was a Briton and an urban aristocrat. By this point, the threat from Gaul was becoming quite serious. At least that was the opinion of the army. But probably not of Gratian. We know this because he was murdered by his army for failing to bring them to Gaul to deal with a vandal threat. So Gratian's rule only lasted four months. You've got to love the stability these usurpations bring, right? Not that the Roman government was any more stable at this period, though. Right around now, we have Stilicho allying with Alaric, 
who he had only just recently fought against, in an effort to steal some territory from the Eastern Empire. So people are just being crazy and stupid all over the place. And actually, right about now, we also have Emperor Honorius urging citizens of the western provinces to take up arms in their own defense. So it looks like the no-weapons rule was finally being relaxed. And he even offered freedom to slaves who wanted to go out and join the western fight. Alright, this is kind of a mess. And if this episode feels a little chaotic, that's because that's what the western empire was like at this point. There isn't really a clear narrative to cling to. Rather, it's just a bunch of frenetic action. Good times. But anyway, let's get back to Britannia and the second dead emperor that we've had in less than a year. So now it's 407, and we have a third British emperor. This guy's an ordinary soldier. Just, you know, a common guy. But he's got a great name. Constantine. And once he became emperor, he became Constantine III. And actually, it seems that he was heavily trading on his name since he immediately renamed his sons to Julian and Constans. Poser. Anyway, Constantine III learned from Gratian. Specifically, he learned the lesson that if you don't go into Gaul, your army's going to kill you. Now let's pause and talk about how weird this is before we move forward. The western continental frontiers have been crushed by these barbarians, and Gaul was lost, right? And Stilicho had stripped the island of many of its soldiers. And it's already been established that Britannia was having a hard time even dealing with the Irish raiders. So where did they get the strength to believe that they could cross the channel and push the Vandals out of Gaul? Am I the only one who finds that weird? I mean, maybe Stilicho didn't take as many as implied by Gildas. Or maybe they returned. But if they did, then why was there such a difficulty with Nial of Nine Hostages? Furthermore, the push to take the fight to Gaul seems to have come from the troops, not from a glory-mad general. So they surely must have felt that they had a solid chance of winning. It's all just very strange. So anyway, Constantine III crossed into Gaul with his British forces. Pretty much all of the British forces, actually. Leaving the Romano-Britons probably a little bit terrified. And he arrived before the Germanic tribes had a chance to occupy the coast. Constantine then sent out scouts and officers to bring as many of the surviving Roman troops to his command. And the barbarians decided to leg it, rather than facing Constantine's army. And while they were running, they were sacking much of northern Gaul. Though that isn't to say that Constantine was doing nothing. While the barbarians were raging, he was marching around and crushing the pockets of barbarian forces he could isolate. And of course, he was building up his reputation for being a man of action and a man who has extreme military prowess. But Stilicho... Stilicho wasn't doing much of anything about Gaul. Well, that's not entirely true, I suppose. He did send some vandals to support the defenses of Gaul. But the people of Gaul were in the middle of a war against the vandals, so when these other vandals showed up, the Gallic citizens told them exactly where they could stick their supposed Roman orders. So Stilicho's vandals looked around, saw some other vandals nearby, and joined up with them. So it's really not fair to say that Stilicho did nothing about the issue in Gaul. He provided fresh troops for the invading army. What a pro. And while Stilicho was trying to be helpful, many of the barbarians in Gaul began to join Constantine's army, 
thanks to diplomacy, actually, a word that was starting to lose its meaning in Roman imperial circles, it seems. And actually, even some forces in Spain were joining him. Although, can you blame them? They could either continue to back Stilicho and Honorius, who were ignorantly supplying the invaders, or they could back Constantine, who had already shown that he could hold off the barbarians. So the new emperor's ranks were continuing to swell. But his job wasn't finished. There were still forces that were resistant to his rule. Namely, loyalist forces. You know, maybe Britannia made the right choice here. I mean, sure, you had small bands of barbarians loose in Gaul. But those who were on the move were headed for Spain rather than Britannia. So as far as the Brits were concerned, pretty much everything was okay. The channel was free of barbarians, and the potential threat of invasion was largely eliminated. Furthermore, this Constantine guy seemed like he could win battles. Maybe he'd actually go the distance, and then they'd have an emperor who owed his elevation to the province. I mean, this might actually go really well. So by the end of 407, after some rather serious battles, Constantine had taken Gaul and restored the territory. He then set about repairing the Rhine frontier and closing down the passes that led into Italy, since, you know, Stilicho was still a threat. There were, of course, some straggling barbarian raiders in Gaul, but in general, the territory had been taken. And meanwhile, Stilicho, rather than focusing on the barbarian problems, decided to focus solely on bringing down Constantine. Again, what a pro. So in the following year, 408, there was a rebellion against Constantine's rule in Spain, led by loyalist forces. In response, Constantine dispatched his son, Constans, as well as Garantius. Garantius was Constantine's chief military officer. Together, they took Spain in something of a lightning campaign that eliminated the remaining loyalist forces, as well as any barbarians that made it that far south. So again, things were looking positive. And again, Stilicho was being grouchy about this and preparing to fight Constantine. But seriously, Constantine now held almost all of the Western Empire. And he took it with just the British forces he brought with him, as well as any soldiers or barbarians that decided to join up. But before you start cheering, you should probably keep something in mind. Once he reached the continent, he never returned to Britannia. Which I suppose isn't really the end of the world, but neither did those British troops. And that kind of is the end of the world as far as the Romano-Britons were concerned. So during all this continental fighting that we've been talking about, Britannia was largely undefended thanks to Constantine's Gallic and Spanish campaigns. And so, of course, it didn't take long before we've got Saxon raiders attacking the British coast, at least according to a 5th century Gallic chronicle. Boy, we sure could have used some of those troops that Constantine took, right? But of course, Constantine didn't want to give them up, at least partially because he was dealing with barbarian uprisings in Gaul that were spurred on by our pal Stilicho. Suddenly, things aren't looking that great for the Britons. And it wasn't like if things got so bad in Britannia they could flee to the continent. No matter where you were in this fledgling empire, there were going to be issues with barbarians. And given Stilicho's involvement with the barbarian raids in Gaul, I wonder if he was responsible for the Saxon raids as well. Now, to compound the frustrations for the Britons, the continental capital of the Gallic prefecture had long been Trier. Almost always has it been Trier. Well, at some point during the barbarian invasion of 406, the capital was moved to Arlay, 
which was farther from the barbarian threat, but was also farther from Britannia, thus distancing the province from its government. And amongst the upper class of Britannia, it couldn't have been missed that the center of gravity for governmental affairs, regardless of which emperor was ruling, was now centered much closer to the Mediterranean and also farther east. This did not sit well with the besieged Britons. But don't worry, we're giving Stilicho as much of a headache as he's giving us. Constantine's restoration of Gaul and Spain had sapped Stilicho of loyalist forces he needed for his plan for a joint attack with Alaric against the Eastern Empire. And so instead of going against the Eastern Empire, now Stilicho was just consumed with a new desire, the desire to destroy Constantine. But unfortunately for Stilicho, he already made plans for war with the East, and Alaric had already marched to Italy in 408 in preparation for that. But now Stilicho changed his mind, and he wanted to deal with Constantine instead. So, you know, thank you very much, Alaric. I'm sorry that you went to all the trouble of coming all the way over here, but we'll have to just take a rain check. I hope you understand. Well, Alaric, upon hearing of how Stilicho had changed his mind due to nearly losing the entirety of the Western Empire, essentially said to him, that sounds like a personal problem. Where's my money? He wanted 4,000 pounds of gold to cover his expenses. Now, those of you who know about Roman history might recall the Celtic king Brennus and his demand for 1,000 pounds of gold following his seven-month occupation of Rome. Well, Alaric wanted four times that. Inflation's a bitch. But, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, he's got a gigantic army of Goths. And the Empire was busy fighting against Constantine, and they couldn't handle also fighting against Alaric and probably the East at the same time. So something unusual happened. Both Stilicho and Emperor Honorius went to the Senate to try and persuade it to pay Alaric rather than face war with the Goths. Oddly, in the middle of all this instability, apparently the Senate was becoming relevant again. The problem was that they weren't really eager to pay Alaric. The short answer for why is that Rome was always pro-war. And that was becoming a tradition that they really just couldn't afford any longer. But elected officials were probably more focused on the optics of the situation rather than the realities. And they didn't want to be the senator who doubted the power of Rome. It's actually similar to how things occur today, it seems. Anyway, so despite their reluctance, Stilicho eventually convinced the Roman senators to vote to give Alaric his money. But it pissed them off. I mean, you had Stilicho, a vandal, making Rome pay Alaric, a goth, so Stilicho could be free to go fight Constantine, a Roman, who was actually defending the territory from, yep, vandals. So Stilicho wanted Rome to pay off barbarians and thus leave him free to kill some Romans who were fighting his countrymen. Something had gone horribly wrong here. But he got his vote. And when spring 408 came around, he was able to send his army across the passes to deal with Constantine. And that army was actually initially successful. But ultimately it fell apart and was pushed back to Italy. Anyway, this is actually a pretty long and complicated story, and it takes place entirely out of Britannia. So let's just give you the bullet points of the more substantial events. Stilicho stuck around in Ravenna to keep an eye on Honorius, because the emperor was kind of weak-willed. Emperor Arcadius, the emperor of the east, died, and Stilicho and Honorius tried to take control of the east, which involved Stilicho traveling to Constantinople. But everything fell apart before he even got there, because Honorius switched sides and backed a rival political group. 
And actually, it didn't take much to get the weak-willed emperor to change sides. That's because there are plenty of instances where Stilicho seemed to favor the barbarians and seemed to prefer to kill Romans over the barbarians. I mean, he had the obsession with fighting against the Eastern Empire. You had the issue with Constantine. You had the repeated escapes of Alaric. The list goes on and on. So the emperor was convinced. And Stilicho was captured in a coup d'etat. And then he was beheaded in 408. And actually, most of Stilicho's allies, meaning many high-ranking military officials, were also killed. And then following the death of Stilicho, Italy sort of went into a genocidal frenzy, killing any goth they could get their hands on. And this, by the way, was all sanctioned under imperial order. Ah, Rome. I don't think I need to tell you how this was both incredibly brutal and incredibly stupid. It was a twofer. That's because any Goths allied with Rome immediately flocked to Alaric's banner, thus making him once again a serious threat. And Alaric quickly took his enormous army across the pass and into Italy. And the Romans were caught completely unprepared. They were actually readying themselves for a fight against Constantine, not Alaric. And rather than getting distracted, this time the Gothic general marched straight on Rome. And once he was there, he made an even greater demand in payment. Again, doesn't this remind you of Brennus? Anyway, he was paid, and then he left to discuss matters with Honorius, but Honorius was having none of it. So Alaric, understandably pissed off, marched back to Rome. And here's why I'm telling you this. It's spring of 409, and Honorius is looking at this massive Gothic menace that's risen up against him. And actually, there was even a puppet emperor that was put up jointly by the Senate and Alaric. Things were going nutty all over the place thanks to these Goths. The last thing he wanted was to deal with Constantine as well. So he sent a message to Constantine, offering to recognize and legitimize him. So everything was going great now, right? Come on. This is the British History Podcast. You know something awful is going to follow, right? There's no way that Constantine will take the purple and live happily ever after. Well, remember that rebellion in Spain that took place in 408? The one that Constans and Garantius put down really quickly? Well, following that victory, Constans headed back to the imperial headquarters at Arlay. But Garantius stuck around. And now he had his own province, basically. He was just running it. And after running it for about a year, he started to think that running the show looked like a pretty good gig. So in 409, after Constantine had been legitimized, he was starting to have a serious problem with barbarian raiders who were already deep into Gaul and crossing into Spain. And Garantius and his allied barbarians were supposed to stop them at the Pyrenees before they got into Spain. But they didn't. Well, that is a serious failure in leadership. So Constans, you know, Constantine's son, well, he responded by dismissing Garantius from his post. But there's a problem with orders like that. They rely on the recipient to obey them. And Garantius really didn't feel like stepping down. Besides, if Constantine could stage a successful rebellion, and it really was successful, I mean, he was wearing the purple now. Well, if he could do it, then anyone could do it, right? So Garantius picked a puppet emperor, Maximus, and tried to usurp the empire. And he even managed to convince those barbarian raiders, the ones that caused this whole problem by crossing the Pyrenees, well, he even got them to join under his banner, thus bolstering his forces that already consisted pretty much of all of Constantine's Spanish forces, which actually was the larger part of Constantine's army. 
Ah, Rome. So Constans couldn't let this stand, and he marched on Garantius. And he was defeated and killed by Garantius and his rebels. Meanwhile, in Gaul, the Burgundians were moving in and settling along the Rhine frontier, whether or not Constantine liked it. Everything was falling apart. And that was the last straw for our little island. We had almost no defenders, our supposed emperor was closer to the Mediterranean than us, and now he couldn't even hold his own territory. And frankly, that wasn't even the half of it. Things were supposed to get better under Constantine. Or at least they were supposed to get better once he was legitimized. And yet here he is legitimized, and Britannia was still getting raided by all manner of barbarians, including Saxons, and had almost no way to defend itself. And this alleged emperor wasn't lifting a finger to help out. We needed someone to come and defend us, damn it. And this guy wasn't fitting the bill. Britannia was over it, and told Constantine, we're finished. Don't call me, I'll call you. Then they immediately set about writing sweet letters to Honorius, begging for assistance. Something along the lines of, Oh no, baby. Constantine meant nothing to me. And don't worry, I was thinking about you the whole time. Or, you know, something like that. Zosimus writes about how the Britons took up arms in their own defense. So they weren't just sitting by the phone waiting for it to ring. They were, you know, looking to save themselves. And they were also, actually, expelling Constantine's officials. <laughs> Meanwhile, Constantine kept his eye on the ball and made his plans to invade Italy. We don't know much about that invasion, which should tell you a lot. And what it should tell you is that it failed. I mean, if it was successful, you'd probably know quite a bit about it. So Constantine marched in, failed, marched back out. Now Constantine has lost everything but Gaul. Ouch. So 410 rolled around. And Honorius was still having trouble with barbarians and usurpers. And I'm not talking about minor problems with these guys either. I mean, Rome has been sacked. I kind of buried the lead there, didn't I? Well, yeah, Rome's been sacked. And consequently, Honorius was getting tired of all these tear-soaked letters coming out of Britannia begging for aid. So he sent a letter to Britannia telling the Romano-British to do what they need to to defend themselves. That they were on their own. Rome withdrew what few soldiers remained on the island, except for Clive Owen, at least according to Hollywood, and Britannia was separated from the empire. But here's the thing. Most of the forces had already been withdrawn. There wasn't all that much to pull. So really, the separation of Britannia from the empire was more of an administrative change than a military one. Militarily, Britannia really had been on its own for years. That was kind of the problem. And so here we are in 410, and we have finally reached a point where Roman Britannia has come to an end. Britannia is independent again. Oh, and in the summer of 411, Constantine was executed. Oops. All right, well, that was quite a long one, and now we're done. So we're done with Roman Britannia. Hooray! But we're not really done with Roman Britannia. And we'll be talking a little bit about what life for the Romano-British was like. Sort of like a Lifestyles of the Romano-British podcast, but with less, you know, Robin Leach kind of behavior. And then I'm going to move on to the Scott cast. I'm going to be talking about what was going on in Scotland during this whole period. And then once we're done with both of those, we're on to the Dark Ages. And on to the Anglo-Saxons, and we're going to have a ton of fun in that. Anyway, so... 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can go ahead and email me. My email address is thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation over at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash British history, or you can go over to the forums. The best way to get to the forums is to just go over to the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and click on the forum button under the participate heading and join in over there. And I think that's about it. Thanks for listening.